Welcome to my podcast, In the Driver's Seat. My name is Sonia Driver and I'm the founder of EcoTan, an Australian organic clean beauty company. Come with a curious mind and an open heart and hopefully it will leave you with a gift. I'll be inviting inspiring and fascinating people into the driver's seat. People whom I connect with and I believe you will too. I'll be unravelling layers of them and their story and that's where we'll find the gold. Buckle up, it's going to be one hell of a ride. Warning, this is an explicit podcast. There is swearing. Maybe a lot. Now we're also recording um, right now, we're live right now. So I just okay. think it's it really important because I always like to keep it real. So and our listeners, they know what I'm like. I just go straight into it. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to beautiful Stephanie Arnold. You may have um, seen her on the latest Netflix documentary called Surviving Death. She's the absolutely stunning, beautiful lady that was having premonitions um, about the birth of her child. And I won't go any further because I'll let Stephanie walk you through it. But if not, check that out on Netflix and I don't know, I feel like personally your journey, even though in parts of it was horrific, it gave me a little bit of a comfort and peace, Stephanie. So thank you for that. And I think your your story is so important. So it's so important to get it out there. Like, you know, there's people that I know in my life right at the moment that someone very close to them is passing. And, you know, this does bring comfort to people. So um just like to say thank you for being brave to share your story. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely no problem. So Stephanie's in Chicago, so um, I must be quite cold. And we're in Queensland, which is stinking hot. <laughs> I wish. I wish I were there right now. Yes, yeah, see, I um, wish. It was like negative 28. Oh, my goodness. You know what? It sounds crazy, but I would swap in a heartbeat. Swap. So, you know, <laughs> it's human beings. We're, we're never happy. But it's so, true. So um, do you want to just start by just, you know, talking to us like you talk to a friend or something? We don't even care. You can swear. You can cry. You can just you – know, it's awesome. a safe space. Safe space. So just be you okay. and, um, and then I'll just sort of interrupt sometimes and just ask you some questions that might pop into my head just like you would with a friend's conversation. So I, I don't – sort of over plan things. I just like to go with it, vibe each other and see what story, you know, wants to emerge, so to speak. How's Perfect. that? Okay. So um so prior to getting married and having children, I was a TV producer and I ran a company for Endemol and I produced shows like um Deal or No Deal in Spanish and worked in development uh, for a lot of reality shows. So yep. when I got married, I relocated from Los Angeles to Cal- to Chicago, and that's basically when the TV career kind of stopped, and we started to have a family. So I have a stepdaughter. My husband was a package deal. She was two at the time when I met her. And then after three rounds of IVF, I had my first daughter, biological daughter, uh, Adina. And I didn't have any complications other than the fact that she was too big, and I ended up having a C-section. And... I was fine, no problems, you know, backed up and, and no issue. 
The second was a little different. So by the seventh round of IVF, I got pregnant with Jacob. And at the 20-week ultrasound, which is when they, they scan for the spine and the quadrants, the heart and everything like that, they noticed that I had a placenta previa. And that's basically a one in 200 risk where the placenta is growing on top of the cervix. And if, you know, they don't really worry too much about it, but they say, you know, as the belly grows, the, the placenta will move out of the way. Um, but if it doesn't, worst case scenario is you have a C-section. But in that moment, I looked at my husband and I said, um, I'm, I have a very rare blood type. I'm O negative. And I said, I've got a bad feeling about this. And he's, and my husband's a PhD economist from the University of Chicago. He's a former Air Force pilot. He's, he's very analytical, as you saw in the Netflix yeah. series. And, you know, he is data driven. And so for him, he's like, honey, we don't have all the information. You need to relax. Don't worry. You know, we'll, we'll handle everything. And then what does one do when you have information? You start Googling everything. Yeah. And um, I learned that a placenta previa turns in, can turn into an accreta, which is what Kim Kardashian had, which is that merger between the placenta and the uterus. If that happens, you might bleed. If that happens, you might need a hysterectomy. If that happens, you could hemorrhage and you'd let worst case scenarios, you and the baby could die. Uh-huh. And at that moment, I sat back and I looked at my husband and I said, this is going to happen to us. The only difference is the baby's going to be fine. And he's like, honey, what you are afraid of is a half, a half, a half, a half, a half a percent chance of happening. That is the worst, the ultimate worst case scenario you need to get your mind off of it. But, but you know, I went into TV producer mode. I was like, okay, I need to produce the life-saving measures because somebody's got to hear me. And it wasn't, it wasn't like... What what I was going through was a knowing. You know when you know something, you don't yeah. know how you know it, you just yes. do. Yeah. So it was just, it hit chills, it didn't let up, it was incessant, and it was like, I have to get help. So talking to my husband about it wasn't helping because he was rational and, and linear in it. Yes. And for me, I was like, okay, let me talk to doctors, let me talk to nurses. I told everybody. Everybody, if you saw me walking down the street, say, oh, how's your pregnancy? I'd be like, I'm going to die. I, oh. I, I told Everybody. I told all my doctors. I had. I actually met with one doctor, and I said, "You know, what happens if I need a hysterectomy? Stephanie, you're not going to need that." And I said, well, "What happens if I do?" And they said, "You know, well, OB won't be able to do it. Your, uh, but then you'd be transferred to mater- maternal fetal medicine. But you know, the reality is, is that gynecological oncologists have more experience um, with." In- high risk reproductive organ surgeries with all the cancer work that they do. So that's what you'd wanted to do the procedure. And so I made an appointment with the head of gynecological oncology at Northwestern Memorial hospital, which is a teaching hospital that delivers 12,000 babies a year. So, so when you show up in the waiting room of a gynecologist office, you see women who are suffering from cancer and, and, surviving barely and with IVs in their arms and no hair. And my husband is sitting next to me. Probably He went with me to every single one of my appointments. So he heard everything, but you know, he's like, I'm embarrassed to be here. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. All I know is that I'm feeling this feeling and no one is giving me any answers. Everybody's telling me everything is normal and the, the tests are normal. So maybe the doctor would have had a patient who had this foreboding or this impending doom. And maybe, just maybe, he would have an answer for me. 
So I go in, I meet with the head of Gynonc um, and his resident, and she's taking notes. And the Dr. Shink, the, the Gynonc, says to me, how can I help you, Mrs. Arnold? And I say to him, I'm like, I tell him, look, my placenta previa is going to turn into an accreta. I'm going to need a hysterectomy. You're the one that's going to do it. So I see you, you see me, you're not my doctor. My husband likes to joke. He's like, it was very mafia-like. It's like, I see you, you see me, <laughs> that's it. And so I'm like, so he sits back and he says, Mrs. Arnold, have you been on the internet? <laughs> and I said, why, yes, I have, doctor. <laughs> However, this is going to happen. At that point, the resident had stopped writing. You know, she was just like this crazy person in the office needs to go. Yeah, she's and hormonal, the said, getting, yeah. 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 Hormonal, right? Why why are you wasting our time? We are doing real work here and you yes. are having a vision. Like that I don't even know I don't even know what that is. It's bullshit. It's like not tangible. We don't have anything, you know, I can't even what are you talking about? There's not even any test results to get you here. You negotiated your way into this office. Like why are you wasting our time? And you know, to his credit in the moment he's like, Why don't we get an MRI? and see if the MRI is positive for an accreta. If it is, then um, I'll schedule myself during a mandatory C-section. Okay, fine. And I felt better, right? So yep. I had something to do. The MRI turned out negative. My husband says, you should feel better. And I said, no, I feel worse because now I'm running out of people to tell this crazy foreboding story to. So, where do you, you know, I take the Where do you over. think that, that, that knowing yeah. came from? Like, can, have you come? Have you got a theory? Or where do you think that? Yeah, I such- mean, I went on a very, very long journey. So this happened seven years ago, but I went on a very long journey through this process of doing hypnotherapy and and asking um, uh, physics experts and you know religious experts and theoretical physicists, and I'm like, and and doctors. I said, you know, with this foreboding. You know, they're like, look, foreboding happens when one is going to have a cardiac arrest or an embolus, however, you know, moments before, days before, but not months before, not in the great detail that you had. So, you know, there's there's two theories for this for me. One is maybe science hasn't caught up to it yet, and maybe we'll find out, maybe not in my lifetime or your lifetime, but maybe there'll be something that will be out there that this is energy, and some people are more sensitive than others, their intuition yeah. is a compass guiding them to what is going right or very wrong in their life. And some people are more perceptive than others, right? Like a dog's hearing is yes. different than, you know, a, a human's hearing. Mm-hmm. My other theory, which I feel is more on tune is, you know, I was getting messages and those messages were coming in loud and clear. I did not question where I was getting the messages from while I was in the thick of it. But yeah. there is no question to me that I got help from um, un unseen forces and why do you Um, think that they were giving messages do you think that there was something like were they giving you these messages so to to what like to either pray against it or 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 to put things in place or what why do you think that they were so insistent of giving you such strong knowing Um, I, you know, the only thing I can come up with is, you know, some people have talked to me about soul contracts, right? You know, before mm-hmm. you're, you're even born in this lifetime, you make a soul contract. And, and it, it's interesting. I obviously don't have any proof of that, but, uh, but I'll sit back and I'll say, okay, let's say my soul contract is, um, I, I am 
vocal on type A personality, maybe they knew that I would be very, very forthcoming with information. Um, okay. But yep. there's so much evidence to my case that yes. it's actually helping the doctors and patients yep. listen differently to the patient. So maybe this was always in the cards. You know, Jonathan likes to tell me, my husband likes to say, you know, if you believe in predetermination, then where does free will put it into this? He's like, then you were always going to survive. I said, I don't believe that predetermination and free will are on the same path. I believe that my expiration date is my expiration date, but my free will got me to speak up and how well I would survive was up to my free will. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. I like that. So, you know, so... In moving in moving forward, I just I you know I wasn't getting any answers. I talked, I posted on Facebook if anybody had my blood type, I was going to need it. I I sent goodbye letters. I wrote goodbye letters. I posted emails um, and told them exactly what was going to happen a month or two in advance. And then um, finally, my OB and and these were visions I was having, but they were they they had a visceral re- effect on them. So it was like I was you know, thinking, you know, about a fountain, like, like in the series you saw, and then all of a sudden in mind's eye, it was, it was blood rushing. And then I felt the blood rush out of my body with a visceral reaction to what I was seeing. And I went to the ER and then the doctor's like, are you okay? And I'm like, no, obviously I'm hemorrhaging. And they're like, no, you're fine. And John is like, oh, this is a false alarm. And I'm like, no, this is a warning. I mean, I was so confident about it. Um, you know, people ask about like this, this knowing and how to tell the difference. And, and, you know, I don't know whether I would have spoken up. I'm like, well, you know, you'll never regret speaking up and being wrong. Yeah, You'll that's be right. judged. Okay. People think you're crazy. Yeah. Everybody thought I was crazy. I'm hormonal. I'm pregnant. Everybody judges your Instagram yeah. profile every single day. Yeah. But, but the reality is, is you will never regret speaking up and being wrong, but you will regret not speaking up and being dead right. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Do you think just off the off chance that also you may, you possibly manifested it because you believed it so much? Has that ever sort of crossed it's, your mind? It's an excellent question. It's an excellent question. It's something that I, when I had survivor's guilt and going through it, I had a really hard time with it because, you know, when one believes in manifestation, which I do, um, you know, you believe that you put things out into the universe and maybe they come back to you. And, you know, I have racked my brains and I've asked doctors who are much smarter than I am and physicists who are much smarter than I am. Like, how does energy work? What does that mean? What does manifestation actually mean? How could you do this? Do you believe? Because the guy knows when I came back and everybody... I was thanking everybody for saving my life. The guy now said self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. So I said, if you believe that, then you lend yourself out to be much more spiritual than you you said. And he's like, I didn't say I believed it. It's just the only thing I can come up with. I said, well, that's a shitty thing to say to me. Because yeah. if you're saying that to me, you're, you're saying that I willed myself to kill myself. And yeah. I've been guilted for all of those that past year or whatever it was. And, um, and so do I believe I manifest it? No, I do not. I do not believe I can manifest what I think in my mind to cause my body to hemorrhage, to cause my organs to combine, to cause me to need a hysterectomy, to cause me to flatline, to cause me to be put under general anesthesia, um, and all the things that I saw happening. 
I do not believe I can physically transform my thought into my body. Yeah, no, and there's stuff that you knew, oh, my God, I could just, oh, I just keep reliving it. And even the doctor, you know, the doctor said that she stopped breathing when you said to her what she had just, under her breath, very quietly said to oh, herself. Yeah. She said, I stopped breathing. Oh, yeah. She, you know, there's no doubt. There is no doubt. So go on, go on with your story. Yep. No, no, no. There's a, there's a, so, I mean, and from my perspective, like, you know, I'm telling everybody, everybody's telling me to relax. I'm, you know, everybody's seeing an open road and I am seeing an 18 wheeler heading straight for me and nobody sees it. Nobody. And nobody's in my mind. So that's why when people say, oh, the brain is seeing tunnel vision. I'm like, you are not my brain. So you can't tell me what I am seeing. It is completely subjective. So, so, um, so. Did you have anybody? Was there anybody that believed you? Was there anybody that no. was? Oh my! That would have been no, horrible. Everybody was trying. Everybody was trying to tell me to relax and think positively, you know. And so, so, but ultimately, um, I had a final consultation with anesthesia, and in that call, I then I explained again. I was, you know, what she was explaining to me what would happen when I delivered the baby, and I said, okay, what happens if X Y Z happens? And she said later that she was startled by the fact I was so specific that I'd had a baby before, had had a C-section before, and sought out specialists to save my life. And with that one phone call, an anesthesiologist who did not know me um, flagged my file and incorporated extra blood in the crash cart in the operating room at the time of delivery. And that oh, is one well that saved my life. Well done. See, a doer. Yeah, so she listened. So she to did. me, I'm thinking that's the premonitions, yeah. and they knew that you were a doer, that you were going to line things up. Oh, yeah, this is fantastic. I love it. Congratulations for being a doer, Stephanie. Yeah. So many people would have let uh, <laughs> let them shoot them down, like let them question their own, you know, mind and had not done what you you just dug in. I mean, that's, that's a credit to you, really. Thank you. Thank you. No, you know, it, it, the, the, when people talk to me about death and the fear of death, the death part wasn't the fearful part like when you die when when one is clinically dead because that's my experience um you you have a switch that goes off it is it is fine it is quiet it is peaceful you see loved ones it is warm it's inviting it's like a congregation of people right it's it's people you know people you don't know it is it is quite content the problem is is that you the ones you leave behind and the fear of life changing is is what is going through most of my mind three months prior to it happening. So yes. the worst part of my case was the three months before it happened. At the time when when I, you know, flatlined was was the um, was sorry my son had walked up. Um, by the time that I flatlined, I was like, it is what it is. Like I've tried, it's over. You know, I'm like, yeah, by world because I've tried my best, right? So, so 36 weeks to the day, I am by myself with my daughter and our nanny, and um, I bleed over the kitchen floor. And Jonathan's in New York, I'm in Chicago, and I say, okay, I'm having a baby today. I get to the hospital, they triage me, I tell my daughter, you know, at the time and I'm hugging and kissing her because I'm acutely aware that this is the last time I'm going to 
care. Oh my god! And um, you know your 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 mother's strength comes in, and you're just like, hey, I don't want her to see me cry. I don't know if she's ever going to remember me, but you know. And the doctor's like, we're going to be fine. You're going to see your brother and your mother soon. And I'm texting my husband on the Skype chat. I'm telling him, um, I need you know, you made me the happiest woman in the world please take care of these children. And he's still not getting it. Like, I'm so aware that these are the last words he is going to ever read from me. And he's like, where do I meet you? And I'm like, ace for recovery, hopefully. And then that was the end of that. Then I get uh, wheeled down COR and I try again to my doctor who you saw in the series. I said, Julie, there's something wrong. You need to put me under general anesthesia. Stephanie, I'm not going to do that. Jonathan's not here. I know you're nervous, but where you're okay, you're in a teaching hospital, we've got it, you cover, whatever. And that was it, right? I'm getting wheeled into the room that is going to give life to my son and take mine. I am so aware of the fear that I have in me that it's so palpable and nobody else feels it. They're wheeling me in. I can't run away from it. I am so aware that when this baby comes out, I'm gone. So imagine being buried alive and you're breathing those last breaths before the final amount of dirt is being covered over you. And the fear, that heartbeat and the the anxiety and everything associated with it. So I, you know, I'm getting prepared for C-section. They put a curtain in front of my face. They, you know, IVs are in, epidurals in, and then they're like, okay. Um, apparently there's about 15 minutes before they delivered Jacob. I don't remember any of it because I feel like I scared myself out of my body because who the hell wants to see what was about to happen. Yeah. And, um, you know, apparently they talked to me. I didn't answer. They deliver a healthy, happy baby boy. And seconds later, I'm dead. Oh my God. I ended up having um, shivers all over my body. And yeah, it was not, you know, And by the way, half of the doctors and nurses in that room, so I end up having an amniotic fluid embolism, which is a very rare one in 40,000 risk where amniotic cells get into the mother's bloodstream. If you happen to be allergic to it, your body goes into anaphylactic shock. And in most cases, you don't make it. This hospital, like I said, delivers 12,000 babies a year. They've been in existence for over 30 years. At the time of my AFE, my amniotic fluid embolism, they had 10. Uh, 10 cases, six did not make it, and the other three are in permanent vegetative state. Oh, my God. And the only reason I am here is because there was a crash cart and there was extra blood. Because as soon as you survived the cardiac arrest and they got me back up after 37 seconds of being clinically dead, they intubate you, and then your body goes into DIC, which is your body's inability to clot blood. Your normal body has about 20 units of blood, and I was given about 60 units of O-negative blood to save my life. And then Jonathan arrives. And Jonathan arrives, and the anesthesiologist comes out to greet him. And luckily for them, he was a pilot. So pilots and anesthesiologists get along really, really well. He's like, he heard the information, and then he went into autopilot. What is mortality, morbidity? Where do we need to get her over the next couple of hours? What is the status? What is this? You know, he went into yeah, auto all the data, collecting all the data. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. Go on. Sorry. So, so then he says, if she needs a hysterectomy, this is the doctor we met with two months before. 
they thought that was odd. Um, and then they said, she won't survive another surgery right now, but I think we stabilized the bleed. Um, so I think she's okay. Um, we don't know how much, if any, neurological deficit, but, you know, only time will tell. And so he sees me in surgical ICU and I'm on life support. And about seven hours later, the bells and whistles go off and they realize I'm still hemorrhaging and they call in the gynoc that we had met with two months before to perform the hysterectomy. When they did the pathology on the uterus, they showed that an accreta had started to form, but where it was located was so microscopic, the MRI hadn't picked it up. Wow. So then I was in a medically induced coma for six days. And I love this show because I'm usually not allowed to curse. But the very first thing I said, and my husband's like, you cannot put this in the book. And I said, it's exactly what I said. And so, you know, they extubate me. They take you down off the meds. And I'm swollen because my kidneys have failed. So my edema is pretty bad. I, I looked worse than, than pregnant. I looked double pregnant. I looked down at my swollen belly. And I'm like, am I still fucking pregnant? <laughs> and, and he's like, at that moment, he's like, I think she's going to be okay. Yeah, yeah, she's got some fight um, in her. She, the fight's back. Wow, wow. So, and then, and then, of course, the the hard part starts because you're you're in a hospital where every department knew my case, and every department was like, "How did you know?" And I was like, "I don't know. I'm in a teaching hospital. You tell me." And they're like, "I don't know." And like, you know, how does this work? I said, "I don't know." So by the time they had released, when I was in the hospital for about a month, when I got out of the hospital, you know, I was worried sick to live, you know, not, not live like killing myself. Live. I mean, like live, like if I had a premonition or if I had a vision, what, what did that mean? How much time did I have? You know, was it a real premonition? No one could tell me about the premonition. Like it was just really upsetting to me that, that no one believed me. Yeah. And then this happens. So then, so then you're heard, oh, it's a miracle. God has a plan for you. I said, that is unfair because the woman who died the day before from what I had, why is my life more important than hers? And so it went on and on. And I was conflicted and the PTSD was sad. And then by the time, you know, because I was a TV producer, a producer friend of mine said, Stephanie, when you're ready to talk about your story, why don't we do it on a local news station and talk about intuition and you know, whatever. And I said, okay, so here it is, me finding meaning in the experience. Six months postpartum, seven months postpartum, I say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to tell a story to local CBS affiliate in Chicago. I tell the story. It goes up on the bird on the satellite. And the very next day, it's the cover story of Yahoo worldwide. And then I'm like, crap, right? So then, then it's like, it's, it's, gets completely out of control. Good morning, America, like all these things. And then I'm like, I feel like I'm just producing a story. The only difference is, is this is my story. So I am, I am trying to keep a distance from it, but it's too, it's too tight and I'm still experiencing visions. So, so what were the visions that you were experiencing? After, so even after I, you got out of the hospital, you're still having visions? I was seeing dead people everywhere. I was seeing ghosts. I was experiencing people's pain at a level that was so high that it was affecting my own body. Like I would feel people's 
I would feel people's blood disorders. I would feel people's heart issues. I would feel people's pain. If they were sexually abused, I would feel pain in areas. And I was confused because I was given a lot of medication. And when you've gotten blood transfusions also, blood is tissue. and Tissue has energy to it. I just posted today on Instagram because I was thinking about it as a a blood donator or a blood donor. I'm like, you know, that tissue is a living organism. And so if you get 60 individuals tissue in your body and it takes 90 days to recycle your red blood cells, what does that do energetically to you? So then I'm confused, right? Is it real? Are these visions? so, So ultimately, you know, I was on a talk show and the host said, did you see the light? And I said, I don't know, man, they gave me a lot of drugs. Um, you know, so I wasn't afraid to say one life to live when we die, it's over. Um, but I was curious if there was anything that I could get from the 37 seconds or the subsequent coma or even get optics into what was happening during the three months prior. And, you know, I've gone to therapy after therapy after therapy and they would say, how can we help you? And I said, I need to know how I saw everything and how I keep seeing things. And they're like, let's not worry about that. Let's just worry about getting you out of the trauma. And I said, that's not good enough for me. So I ended up finding a regression therapist who uses hypnotherapy to take you back to the moments of trauma. And I had no high hopes for it. I actually, you know, did it over Skype. We, we sat down, meditated. I videotaped that therapy so if any of your audience wants to look at it, there's a small clip on it on stephaniearnold.net. If you go to the spiritual section and you opt in, you can see about a three minutes of, of the video. So what she explained to me was that um, under hypnosis, you have these, these memories that are stored like film strips in your brain. And under hypnosis, you're in a meditative state that you can access those visions or those film strips. You are an observer this already happened to a part of you. So let's take you back into those moments. And so after many, many hours, I finally got back into the OR. And you see me in this particular video that's on my site. You see me actually getting back into the OR. And that's where the Netflix series picked it up. Where it was like, I saw who hit the button for the code. I saw which nurse jumped on my chest and gave me CPR. I saw that my own doctor kept saying, this can't be happening. This can't be happening. I saw, you know, what my daughter was doing down the hall in labor and delivery. I thought my husband was wearing when he got off the plane. It was like all of the walls and the feelings, everything just kind of disappeared. And then I saw spirits. I saw my family members and then I saw people I did not know. And well, who when do you think I the people were that you didn't know? Who do you think? What, they were. What some, do you think? Some were related to friends of mine in this world. So I saw my best friend's little brother who died at seven years old. Instantly, I knew how he died, which was always a mystery to her because he died at seven years old choking on his vomit. And at seven years old, you can sit up, you can cough it up. And so she was always, she wanted an autopsy. She couldn't understand why the mother wouldn't do it. And she always thought there was foul play and she was devastated by it. And then he also, he kept saying to me, tell my sister I'd, I missed the way she twirled my hair. Oh. And this was before I even met her. So, like, And then I met my husband's father who died in 1998. And there was a coin. And I write all of this 
this stuff um, in 37 seconds. So, and you felt like you felt so anyway, love and peace. Do you yeah. you felt is it good over there when we're all? Is it nice? Yeah, no, it's not. It's peaceful. It's nice. You're welcomed. You know what? You know I what these. I read so many articles from Psychology Today and everything about psychologists saying, of course, when one is in trauma, you're going to wish your loved ones are there, but it's wishful thinking. I'm going to call bullshit. But okay, let's let's just say that that's that's not. Okay, or let's say that's true. Let's put a pin in the fact that it, the, your relatives are wishful thinking. Mm-hmm. It's the ones I did not know that had messages for the ones back here that were accurate down to what they said that I could have never known. Wow. And that is where there's a big question mark. And so I, I know from my own experience and I, you know, I was on a call with Laura Lynn Jackson the other day, who was also in the Netflix series. And she said, Stephanie, you, you are a medium. I said, no, I'm not a medium. That's not, that's, that's your business. That's what, I'm like, that's not what, who I am. I don't do readings. This isn't, this, no, this is not what I do. She's like, everybody has disability. You know, what happened was, is, you know, you got unplugged, you were asystolic, you know, no electricity running through your body. And then you get plugged in and now you're on high voltage. And so you're able to pick up things. It's, it's all over the place because you haven't, you have not reined it in, but you can learn to, to rein it in. And I'm like, I'm not so sure I want to. Like, I'm like, I, I don't know whether I want to perfect this knowing. I'm not, so, you know, I don't, it just, I don't believe that my, well, let's put it this way, that my life, is to become this medium. I am, I am more, how do I even say, like, it's taken me a long time to get to this point and agreeing to do the Netflix thing where I talk about that I actually saw spirits because the first few years when I, when I was out there, I really only talked about what I could prove and all my documentation. And I didn't really want to go into the spiritual side of things. I really wanted to limit it to the premonitions, the intuition, that, you know, if you sense something, say something, you insert yourself into your own narrative. Doctors have their own intuition. You need to speak up, you know, and be part of your story. And then this kind of all happens. And then I'm like, okay, I can stand here 100% and tell you that life does not end when we physically do. 100%. Because there is no way that I could see or continue to see the things I, I see. That is just. No can you just say that again? And I couldn't have done. Can you say it again so we can really? Life. Yeah. Life does not end when we physically do. We change from yeah. a solid to a gas. That will help so many people out there. So, like, do you un- do you finally sort of understand the reason why you think you've had this experience? Is is there? What What do you think? You had this. Why did you have this experience? What do you? How do you make peace with it? You know, um, I think that my whole career was about telling stories and about dealing with mass media and ability to reach a lot of people. And I say all the time, like I was involved with many reality shows that I probably was going to hell for. So I feel like I died and rebirthed, and I like wiped a clean slate. But, um, but now I feel like, you know, what, what this is, I feel like I am helping with the bridge 
like a bridge between patients and doctor communications about mm-hmm. something that they are uncomfortable with. Yes. And patients are also uncomfortable speaking up about. Mm-hmm. Every single one of us has had doctors who have not listened to them, clinicians who have brushed them off. Things don't fit into a nice, neat little box. Mm. Fantastic. That's great for the majority, but not for the outliers. And also I, a lot know, of people so that feel, have a lot of many degrees yeah. and they, they, they're like, a, you know, high up in the medical field. It's to come to terms with they maybe don't know to actually say, I don't know. You know, it's it's sort of confronting to it, a lot of people, they isn't don't. it? They don't want to know that. They it don't want is, to, but, you but know. I, but I do believe that it's part of this. But if I wasn't married to who I was married to, to ask the questions that I had to ask because he was uncomfortable with all of it, yes. that I might not have gotten all the data that I've gotten as, yeah. as a data set to make him comfortable with what was going on because I asked a ton of questions. I mean, he said when you, the therapy was, he's like, how do you know any of this isn't a recalled episode of Grey's Anatomy in your head? <laughs> and I'm like, it's a, you know, it, you know, after I was done yelling at him, I was like, you know what? It's a fair point Yeah. because yeah. sure. I was on drugs. I had transfusions. I was in a coma. Why wouldn't I mix up thoughts that I see on TV? Sure. So, so luckily I, I videotaped that therapy and I took it back to the doctors who were present and they all were like, I didn't go to medical school for this. I didn't, you know, yeah. this doesn't make sense. It was accurate down to where we're standing. Okay, well, the brain shuts down. You know, hearing is the last to go, but you most certainly couldn't see. So I will tell you from just an immediate factor, the speaking I do in medical institutions and universities, it, it has changed 100% the way my doctors practice medicine. And when I go to speak at universities, divinity schools, medical schools, I will tell you that even the biggest skeptics will come up to me and say, I kind of know what you're talking about because my mother had this or I had a patient like this or I had this. And you know what? That is, I believe that is the reason why I survived, why I continue to tell the story. And the, the knowing of this afterlife and that the souls continue and live on and help us in this lifetime because that is ultimately what I believe happened during those three months that I had my uncle helping me through this process. You know, they, the fact that they are there to help you means we're not alone. And again, life doesn't end. And so, but I, even though that's become more of like the hot topic right now, I just feel like that is not a hundred percent of my mission. I feel like my mission is really bridging the gap here where we all have these experiences with life and death situations, which are extremely important to speak up when you sense strong and to, and if the doctors aren't listening, mm. then you get another doctor. Yeah. And also trusting your um, intuition and yeah. educating the medical um, system to you know listen to their patients with their their intuition. They know their bodies. They know and they know things absolutely. Um, so to, just yeah. to leave our listeners with one last piece of advice um, or wisdom, what that would what? you like? So if you want to just leave our listeners with one last piece of wisdom or advice or something, last bit of information that you would like to gift to yeah. the listeners, what um, would you like to? So. I- 
I would love for people to, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of fear, especially in times of COVID, um, in times when your loved ones are in a coma, that you haven't gotten a chance to touch them or to hold them or to be close to them. But I promise you, have the nurse do a FaceTime, talk to them, talk to them in your house. They can hear you. And in some cases, they can even see you. So don't think that just because they are unconscious and the doctors are telling you, you know, they're, they're, they're here, but they're not really here. They're there and they can fly. And that the reason why I no longer wear black at funerals is because I realized that now my father passed away about a year and a half ago. And I was like, he was very sick and he was bedridden for a long time. Well, now he's everywhere. Now when we need him, he's around. He couldn't see that before. And so the fear, I mean, it's, all of this is really fear-based, the unknown, right? The I'm fearful of death because I'm fearful of the unknown. The death part is the easy part. It's what leads up to in the life that we lead before then. That's hard. But I promise you it gets easier. Wow. That's beautiful. That is so beautiful and comforting to many people. Thank you for joining us from Chicago, Stephanie. You touched a lot of people's Thank hearts. Thank you, Stephanie. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I hope you keep in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If you ever come to Australia, we're definitely, you know, going to have a chili margarita or something. That would be perfect. Absolutely. Without <laughs> children. Yes, yes. <laughs> we'll sort that. Okay. God bless, Stephanie. We'll okay. talk soon. Bye. You too. Bye. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye. So until next time, tribe, I'm jumping out of the passenger seat, closing the door going inside and having a vino. Let's get together real soon. God bless.